Lessons Lived podcast, hosted by Michael Puente. What would you teach the world? Welcome to Lessons Lived. I'm talking to Max Conserva. I've known Max for about seven or eight years. He's a coach at San Francisco CrossFit, and he runs the Adaptive Athletics program here. His clients are an inspiration to me, as is Max. When you see folks overcoming major physical challenges and still working super hard at the gym, it's really quite amazing. No one's judging them about whether or not to hit the gym, and yet they hit it, and they hit it hard. So Max is going to talk about a couple of lessons. If you have a difficult or complicated problem you need to overcome, you need to be involved yourself. You need to be the driver of the process. And the second lesson is to find purpose through solving your personal problems. Hey, Max, how are you doing? Doing good. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me. Why don't you tell me a little bit about your background, what defines your life right now? Yeah. What are you doing? Yeah, that's a pretty open, open-ended question. Uh, I work at San Francisco CrossFit. I spend the majority of my day working with individuals, usually with chronic physical problems. It's um, kind of a profession I, I don't know, created. Okay. Way back in the day, a long time ago, this all started. Uh, when I was a young kid, I got hit by a truck. And since the age of eight, I went through uh, probably 15 odd surgeries um, over the course of about seven years and was left with a very complicated and severe injury to one of my legs mm. without getting into it too much. One of my legs is just completely mangled. So I uh, wear a brace all the time, basically 24 hours a day to stabilize my really unstable leg. And I went through a few decades after the accident where I was, uh, I just basically bowed out of a lot of physical activity, um, was real self-conscious about the way my leg looked and uh, didn't get much help for uh, a real constructive path forward from the healthcare system. Okay. They did a great job. I mean, like getting hit by a semi-truck and getting drug under a semi-truck, like I was smeared all over the, the street. So they did a good job in making sure I didn't die, like doing whatever they could. But at the end of the day, when it comes to, you know, being a little kid and not wanting to go like in the pool with your friends because you were self-conscious about the way your leg looked or not being able to participate in certain activities, they only could do so much. Hmm. Later in life, when I uh, got into my 30s, I really took a self-assessment and uh, asked myself, is this really the best that I can do? Hmm. And... It was the first time I really turned that question inside and that question kind of led my life in a totally different direction. Was there something that, a life event or something that made you ask that question? Yeah, I actually get this question a lot. And uh, I mean, I didn't get struck by lightning or haven't had a near-death experience that changed my perspective, but it was more honestly just self-reflection. And so I spent my 20s just doing a normal, what I'll call normal life, went to school, graduated, started a career that has nothing to do with what I'm doing now. Mm -hmm. And then about 10 years later, when I decided to take a little time off, you know, I guess I've, I have a bit of an ego, like everybody does. And most of my ego was around my career. Okay. I think I only ended up doing the things I did being in consulting finance and starting a company after that, just to kind of prove that I could, which is not a good reason I think to do anything in the end. And I kept thinking, what am I going to do next? Like, I'm going to start another company or I'm going to go do something impressive. And as I took a little time, I ended up taking like two years off. I started looking inside myself. I came to the idea where I was like, 
if I think like my opinion of myself is so great that I can go be a great entrepreneur, why can't I solve the biggest problem in my life, which is mm -hmm. my own physical condition and my own perception of my physical condition? Like if I'm so good at doing things, like why can't I figure this out? And so that, that just launched me down a new track. And I really thought, okay, if we're really talking about me being better as a human, me enjoying life more, me being, having less physical pain, me being more confident, this is clearly where I need to spend my time. And so that reframed how I thought. And I started a process which started in my early 30s, I'm in my late 30s now, that started a process that I think will continue for the rest of my life. Wow. And were you doing any physical activity before, or are you just drilling down into the work life, yeah. crushing that? So when I was in my teens, I was. There was a couple sports where um, my friends did, and I was comfortable kind of doing them with my friends. And a couple sports where I, I kind of played to my advantages. Like actually, I used to snowboard quite a bit. Okay. And that was because you wouldn't think like somebody with missing half their leg would be able to snowboard uh, well, but just the, the dynamics of being having your hips locked in on one plane, I could really use my undamaged side and kind of mitigate the use of my, my damaged side. So there's a few things I did consistently. And it, it was the real difficult part though was, I don't know, I, I always identified very early that I wanted to live a life that was very unguarded and easygoing. Mm -hmm. It's like if someone asks you to do something, like go dance, like you just go dance, whatever right, right, right. results. Somebody asks you to go hike something, it's like you go and give it your best shot. Mm -hmm. But when you're dealing with some kind of obstacle where you think that you're not gonna be able to do it or you're gonna be judged in a certain way because you're gonna do it, it just prevents you from like living in an exploratory life. You always end up guarding. You know, and if it's a, an image thing, which it was for me, it's like, you know, you might be on a date with a girl and she's like, you're walking by the beach and says, hey, let's go for a swim. And then all of a sudden, that is a disastrous situation for you, you know? So when you live with something like that, you always have to be on guard for it. And it's just incredibly, incredibly taxing. And then to your question, as I got a little bit older, once I started working, physical activity really fell away. And it was just something that I was working between 60 to 90 hours a week. Yeah, they tricked me into that. <laughs> <laughs> It'll all be okay if you could just make more money. <laughs> exactly, yeah, so I was on that road for a while. And that was probably another partial catalyst. Like I got in my early 30s and I think, you know, all everybody can probably relate to the idea of as you're getting older, you know, from the age you're young, you have a, an image of like, this is the person I'm gonna be. Like, I'm gonna have these things covered. And then maybe you cross some age threshold from me as my early 30s, and I kind of look at myself and I'm like, all right, I'm not really in shape anymore. I'm not really eating well. I'm not sleeping well. I'm not spending a lot of time. Like, I just broke up with a long-term girlfriend. And it's like, I thought I'd have some of these things under control. And furthermore, I started to look at people in my same profession, you know, in their 40s and 50s, and most of them did not have any of this stuff under control. It was like they were doing the same thing I was. They, were, they might have been making more money, but they were working their asses off, et cetera. And I just knew that if I didn't dedicate myself to changing these things, then they, they wouldn't change on their own. Was there anything you were doing for life satisfaction? Or I guess you couldn't if you're working that many hours. I read a long time ago, someone said, when you're working really hard, you can work really hard at a job, and then you can have one other thing. And that other thing could be your family, or your health, or a social life. And my thing was my social life. So I was doing the, I went to school um, in Berkeley, 
And uh, I came to San Francisco right after I left school. So I had a lot of friends in the city. And uh, the jobs that I worked, I worked with a lot of people my same age. Okay. So I was out every weekend, and that was kind of my source of blowing off steam. Right. I mean, there, were, there was a point in my life where I was working 12, 14-hour days, and then I'd go out at night for six hours, go to sleep at like two or three, and then wake up at seven. And this would go for months and months on end. Wow, that's a young yeah. person's game. <laughs> totally. I mean, it, it wasn't even sustainable. Right. Like when I was really doing that schedule, every three weeks I'd get sick. Like oh, work. wow. And I ended up getting sent home from work even. I was so used to just pushing through it. I got sent home from work a couple of times. Like, Dude. you look <laughs> like absolute oh death. Like throwing up in the bathroom, like wearing a suit, like in a client meeting, going to the bathroom, throwing up and coming back in the meeting. That sounds I rough. drank, um, remember Five Hour Energy? Yes. Yeah. So I drank. I'm not exaggerating. I've drank at least a thousand of those things over the course of that time. Not, not exaggerating. Wow. When I, I had a company that I ran in LA and we had that on order and like I drank a couple of those a day, you know, and coffee and everything else. Yeah. It was just like a means to an end. Wow. That does yeah. not sound like a healthy lifestyle. So you got the inspiration to make a change. Yeah. Didn't feel satisfied with the rat race sort yeah. of situation. And so how did you make the transition? to yeah. doing all this. I know this is about lessons learned, and yes. I just thought of another good one, and maybe it's a different way of saying the same one. But in, in my 30s, when I started to make the transition, essentially I realized that either I could let other people tell me what was important in my life, or I could decide for myself what I thought was important. And so I poured my energy into defining what was important, and that really mm. changed my life. It was like my catastrophic physical injury being good at managing that, like that was important. Like if I were to look at my life objectively from a third party and say, if you could have, give this person one skill that would help them for the rest of their life in a way that no other skill would, it would be that one. To manage the To be able to manage it. Okay. To be able to, to mitigate the pain I had every day, to be able to allow myself to be able to play with my kids when I have kids, to be able to, travel and be able to walk however long I wanted to walk without an issue, to be able to not be afraid to participate things in things and fail. Yeah, I actually clearly remember when I was like 18, 19, 20. It was my first time backpacking through Europe. Right. You backpacked before through? I have not. Never? What about no. your Peru trip? Never? Um, a little, little. I'm a comfortable person. Okay, well, <laughs> well, I don't burn calories outside of the gym. <laughs> uh, well, not not backpacking like hiking, but just okay. like you're young. Oh, just traveling. You have traveling. a backpack okay. on. You go from hostel to hostel. Yes, done that. So I was doing that for my first time ever, and I was in Prague, and I was at a hostel, and I met some guy who was traveling by himself from somewhere on the East Coast, and we met. And the first day, I was like, "Hey, what are you doing today?" We became friends. He's like, "Oh, the first day I get in, in, into any city." I like to just walk around the city to get a good feel for it. Like, and not with anywhere to go, just to walk and walk and right. walk. And I thought to myself, I was like, man, that's like a well thought out, good way. It was like a good way to see a city. It was like, I learned something that day. And then the next thought I had immediately had was, too bad I can't do that. Mm. Like, too bad that's not for me. That'd be right. such a great thing. But I have to really be cognizant of how my leg feels. If I walk too much, my back will hurt. I'll get a blister, my brace. And so something so basic like that, you know, 
if you're not really paying attention, you can kind of let that go by and be like, well, whatever, I just go on the bus or I take a taxi and I still get to go to the sites. But if you're anybody that's traveled any you know, distance, you realize that it's not about checking the boxes. So you felt about, it was insurmountable to do this basic yeah, it was plan just, and good idea. Exactly. Just plain, simple, good idea, right? It'd be like, you know, same thing with exercising. You know, someone really convinces you that exercise is a, something that should be a part of your life. And then you say, well, oh, that sounds so great. Too bad. Right. I can't be one of those people. You know, and that later really happened to me with physical activity as well. So what you were just saying for your third lesson was that don't let other people define what you can and can't do. Is that yeah, right? but don't, don't let other people define what's important. Oh, so that's important. Okay. That's really like, I think... You know, as we're alive, we're constantly taking nods from other people. Like, is this a good idea? Should I be doing this? Should I not? And that's, it's not like we should never do that. And I think you build like a framework of how you should operate in the world based off that, right? It's mm-hmm. like, you yeah. see what your parents are doing, your right. buddies are doing, and what they think is important. And, oh, you should go into this career. And I think generally those are like some kind of basic guidelines not to run into major problems. Mm-hmm. But I think as you get older, it's incumbent on yourself to reassess those guidelines and say, why am I working 90 hours a week? Right. And if the answer is, I love money, I've checked with myself, I love it, I need more <laughs> money, I have to make a million dollars by the time I'm 30, you know, I, I want that car, and it, you can really convince yourself that that's the case, then go do it. But if you just got into it, because it was like a prestigious position and people told you it was a good thing and people patted you on the back while you got there, if you, you'll end up chasing something that you don't really think is important. Like for myself, I always thought money was a big deal. Like I grew up in a fairly like regular middle-class household and I was making more money than my parents had ever made within three years of being out of school. And I quickly realized, like, I didn't spend any of it. Like, didn't really care. I, I realized the main thing you get money for, I mean, once you can pay your bills and uh, be doing what you want is to buy luxury. Like, luxury cars, luxury houses, luxury clothes. And I didn't really care. Like, I bought some of it, and I didn't really care. Didn't bring you any satisfaction. Didn't bring me any satisfaction. I know that's really, like, trite to say. Um, but I think it's I, true. It's good to hear it. I think... Like all trite things, you need to go experience it, right? You need to actually feel it. And so, sure, if I'm going to get money for free, I'll take it. But if it means me working 80 hours a week, week in, week out, and, and sacrificing all the other things that are, are available, that, that's the point where you really have to decide what's really important to me. And I think that's just that's absolutely critical. And it made me think right now of even if it's the culture that sets us up to think that that's what should be important too. Yeah. You see all these, oh yeah, you gotta have all this money, fancy cars and all this kind of stuff, and romanticize it and make it seem like it's such a, like that's the answer to all our problems. It's not yeah. just an individual person, but it's the whole society set up to think that that's the case. Yeah. And it's tough, I think, to extract yourself from that unless you've lived the dissatisfaction that exactly. you've had. Yeah, it's not a, it's something where you have to just find a way to open your eyes in the situations. And I'm not, you know, maybe you get in a piece of work that you work really long weeks, but you love the work right. and you happen to get paid a lot, then God bless you. That's right, fine. Right. That sounds that great. That is great. <laughs> um, but if you get to a position where you're there because people told you it's a great job, you don't really find the work interesting enough mm-hmm. and you're making a ton of money and you're only there because you're scared to do something else, that is a recipe for a highly unsuccessful life. If you're there telling yourself that, 
someday, like once I get X amount of money, I'm gonna make the jump and do something else. That is a trap that most people fall into that unfortunately it's really hard to get out of. So my question is, a lot of people don't fall out of that trap. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people are in their 60s and miserable and you know, because yeah. they've been doing that for as long as all that whole chunk of valuable life. Is there something that made you realize that some kind of illumination point where you said, oh my God, this isn't satisfying? Because I'm, I'm yeah. just using it as a contrast to most people really don't come yeah, to that yeah. conclusion. Yeah, I think it's about constantly reassessing yourself. So for me, it was, I started out in corporate strategy consulting, and then I did that for about three years, and then I moved in, and then I thought, okay, well, this isn't interesting enough, it's not worth the sacrifice. And again, I looked at the people, maybe that's a good strategy, you look at the people ahead of you in line, I looked at the managers that were five years ahead of me, and the partners that were eight to 10 years ahead of me, and they were doing the same thing. They, I mean, unless they, there's always a few guys that were around when the firm started that are obscenely wealthy and don't do anything anymore. <laughs> but unless the firm continues or the company continues to go through these like hockey stick right. style growths, sure. everybody else is just gonna kind of make their way up. You know, and it doesn't mean they're not gonna make a lot of money, but they're not gonna be on easy street. There are always gonna be a lot of people battling with them the whole time. So I went into finance after that and thought maybe this is more where I want to be, little did I know, I was also just kind of prestige chasing. It was like another higher level of prestige. I did like that better. It was more interesting. I had more autonomy. I wasn't so micromanaged. But again, I felt it was the same thing. It was interesting, but not interesting enough. Right, and you um, probably saw people that had been there longer too. Yeah, and it's same thing. The guys that started the firm were obscenely rich and everybody else was doing fine, but they were working really hard. And I knew unless they left and started their own firm, they'd be working really hard too. And again, I think I, I said it before in terms of like challenging my ego, but there was always something in my head, which was just like, I know I'm playing this game where it's like, this is a good thing to do. This is a way to make money. I would not be here if I wasn't getting paid a lot. And is all my life gonna amount to is just being really good at this game. Right. Like being really good at doing well for myself. All I was attempting to do was do well for myself. Like make money and do something that other people said that, wow, that's good, good, keep doing that. And this, like that's as capable as I am, like that's as smart as I am just to kind of just do well for myself. And I didn't have some grand scheme at that time, like, oh, I have to help the world. It was still very ego-driven. It was just simply like, can't I figure out a better game to play? And that was going on in my mind. And then, and then I left again, and I went and I started the company. Um, uh, it was a hobby that I'd been kind of doing at the same time, uh, liquidating inventory. And I thought, okay, maybe this is it. And I enjoyed that much more. Running my own business, having a, a few employees, like having a culture not having a boss, um, still stressful, still working a lot, but I had more flexibility around when I was stressed and what I was stressed about. And after three years of that, my partner and I decided to split up. And so we had an opportunity, an opportunity to leave. And again, I looked at what I was doing and we were essentially liquidating inventory from Best Buy, like pretty boring conversation, but maybe that's a point. I got to a point where I realized when I told people what I did, I'd tell them I was an entrepreneur, I was a business owner, and it'd be like a status thing, which was nice. But then when they actually dug into what I did, like I didn't care what I, <laughs> I didn't care about the service my company provided. It was simply a vehicle to make money. Right. And our customers were happy and we added value. So it's not like we were some, 
you know, we were doing something that wasn't fulfilling the stakeholders' needs, but it was just like no passion behind it. For I was you. selling electronic equipment, you know, that it was last like, year's model. <laughs> exactly, exactly, stuff like that. So I was refurbishing things, and it was just like, you know, if you take the P and L away, you take the income statement away, it's like, what are we doing every month? It's like we're taking this <laughs> electronic thing from over here, and we're giving it to these people, and you know, maybe we're saving them a few dollars, but it's like, again this is all I'm gonna do is to try to like optimize this little wheel. And so again, it wasn't about the content of what I was doing. Right. So I knew something was off still. And that's when I decided that I needed to take a break. I'm imagining this is the time where you started transitioning into taking care of your leg and, and yeah. physical, yeah. Uh, making physicality and taking care of that big part of your life. Yeah. So you, you got the break by liquidating the company. So now yeah. you're kind of like, okay, what am I gonna do next? Yeah. How did that next step happen? Yeah, so I actually went and traveled for a while. Like I, I brought up the fact that I traveled when I was young, when I loved it, and then all through my 20s, it was like, did not travel, it was just for work. Sure. So I traveled for a little while and uh, kept my mind kept coming back to the things I had been bad at, and that was like, my relationships weren't where they, I wanted them to be, my health wasn't where I wanted it to be, my intellectual like pursuits and curiosities mm-hmm. kind of gone nowhere. Right. You know, I leave college and I'm studying a bunch of stuff and I figured I'd just continue to learn other things. I didn't learn, you know, read no, very few books throughout my 20s. It was all business yeah. books and just garbage. And then ultimately my leg was just not, it was just a problem. It was a problem in my life. And whenever it wasn't a problem, I was I just successfully ignored it. So I started thinking, okay, let me go through each one of these issues in my life and see how I can address it. So I started attempting to be healthier, to have better relationships, and ultimately to push my condition forward in some respect. And I got to my leg, and the first thing I thought was, okay, well, I haven't seen these specialists in like a decade. Mm. So it's been a decade. Maybe medical technology has changed. Totally. So I did that, went all around California, saw physical therapists, um, orthotists, people that make braces, mm-hmm. and uh, orthopedic surgeons. And essentially after six months of interviewing these guys, there's nothing they could do. They were basically very pleased that I wasn't in more pain and I didn't have more dysfunction. And what are you complaining about? Pretty much, kind of, yeah. yeah they're, they're just, you know, they'd look at my, brought all my medical records with me and they look at my CT scans and just say like, wow, I, you sure you don't have more pain? Like, there's nothing else happening. And you know, so for them, it was like a happy thing. And for me, it was a realization that nothing had changed, nothing would change. And I began to think like, okay, I'm not gonna place this on society to fix. I'm gonna place this on myself to fix. Mm-hmm. And that's where I started. I thought, I'm gonna give this a six solid months that I'm gonna really apply myself to my condition and just figure out whatever I need to figure out to try to move the ball ahead in the most holistic way possible. Like I'm not gonna perform a surgery on myself, but I'm gonna find it out if there is a surgery that exists somewhere that could work. And so I became a detective and I spent six months trolling through um, physical therapy, creating braces and designing my own surgeries. And I- Designing uh, your own surgeries? Yeah, in essence, finding everything that possibly done to understand what was wrong with my leg and what could be done to fix it. So that when I went back to the professionals, it wasn't like, hey, here's my CT scan, like fix me. It was, hey, I'm thinking of doing a proximal tibia osteotomy with putting a wedge on the medial side and rotating, you know, the fibula 
45 degrees internally, like, what do you think about this procedure? I've seen it done here. How do you think it, you know, I came in with an agenda. I came in understanding the landscape, right? I'm not going to contribute. I'm not going to, I guess, create a mound surgery is the wrong word, but I'm not going to reinvent the wheel here, but I'm going to know everything that's available so we can have an intelligent Yeah, you're, t- you're taking, this is your, this is your, the first lesson that you mentioned earlier. This yeah. is taking control of your situation rather, totally. than, rather than allowing society, the doctors, whoever, to tell you what your options are. You're in the driver's seat. You're going to go see, like, I'm going to try and maximize what I can get out of this situation yeah. myself. And you're the one that's responsible for it. So you're doing all this stuff. Yeah. And it's like any field, like whatever the person across the table, they're professional in, you're going to do yourself a great injustice if you cannot speak their language. If you know what they're supposed to know, like you just understand the vocabulary, understand the scope of their practice, you can give them a problem that fits into their domain of expertise. Okay. But if you give them a problem outside of their domain of expertise, it's very difficult to translate that into a solution. Mm-hmm. Or, so it's like saying, if you walk in there and say, you know, I want to run, but I can't, and you take that to an orthopedic surgeon, it's like, that's a human problem mm. that he has to translate into orthopedic surgery language, right? And, and, so, and a lot more. Yeah. Complicated to learn how to run. Um, yeah, exactly. And he, he, maybe he doesn't even know how to run. Like, he's not a runner. He never had. He, he's never been coached. So he has zero idea about why running would cause problems in the first place. Hmm. So, yeah, that got the ball rolling. That's when I first ended up coming into CrossFit, San Francisco CrossFit, 2011 as an athlete. When you came into the doctors with all that knowledge, did they yeah. change their attitude towards you? Did you get any better or different treatment actual outcomes from the physicians themselves? Or they were just kind of like... Night and day. Night and day, really? Night and day. Absolutely different. I went from being like patient N in a normal distribution of outcomes to being the ideal patient to work with. Because you were taking the responsibility into your own hands also. I was taking the responsibility in my own hands, knowing, like, I don't want to confuse this with trying to browbeat the doctor into thinking something he doesn't think, Mm -hmm. but really understand where they're coming from, really understand what they're capable of, and then having the most intelligent conversation, giving them the benefit of the doubt. Like I know, since I work with a lot of people dealing with a lot of complicated chronic physical problems, sometimes there's this adversarial relationship that comes up where it's like, I think things should be this way and my doctor thinks things should be the other way and he's like stupid or I told him it's supposed to be this. At the end of the day, if the person you're working with, if you cannot give them the benefit of the doubt, I mean, I'm sure there are all probably some doctors out there that suck, but the most of them, yeah, in you know, any profession, they're trying to do the best they can. They got a family at home, you know, patient five of 15 they're seeing today. They're just trying to make sure that you don't have any huge problems. They're trying to do what they know how to do to you. They don't have time to like invent a new procedure in the 15 minutes they have with you. And when you leave, they turn around and walk in the next room, they got another problem to solve. Right. And they're not spending their weekends doing this. They're not spending their nights doing this. They have other they have a life, et cetera. So if you have that kind of relationship, the odds are you're the problem. Meaning that this is a team effort. And if you're, you're the project manager, and if the person you're working with, you're having a bad problem with, it's you that need to sort that out. And if it is the 5%, say, I'm just pulling that out of my ass, of people that really are bad at their job, then find a new team player. But if the, every doctor you see is a bad relationship, you have to start looking at yourself. So it changed the game because like, for example, I really understood after diving into it that when you're dealing with long-term chronic physical conditions 
and deformities mm -hmm. in like in joints or bone, the main mission of an orthopedic surgeon, the main guiding post is pain reduction. And if you take pain reduction out of the equation, like my leg hurts somewhat, but not a ton. It's actually I have problems with my back and other parts of my body, sure. compensatory problems. Yeah. So if you know that, you know their motivation, like what they're attempting to do. And so you also understand that it's a lot, orthopedic surgery is not as sophisticated as you think. It's like they want a very big, they, they want to find, or when they see a case and you walk in there and you're like, oh my God, I can't stand on this. They basically say like, all right, well, let's just, we're going to roll the dice and try to fix this because right now it's unlivable. So even if we don't succeed, it's like, hey, we, we needed to try. But if you walk in there and you just say like, hey, doctor, I'm ashamed about the way my leg looks. It's so crooked and twisted. I love to run. I want to participate in these activities, but my knee doesn't move the right way or it's wobbly, but there's no pain. They really run the risk of actually adding pain to the equation. And so once I learned that dynamic, I really had a very healthy respect for surgery in the sense of like, you know, if it's not hurting really bad, they don't want to go in there. Hmm. So I eventually turned away. I mean, I had one doctor, the head of arthroplasty at UCSF was like, okay, you know, you have a great idea. I think it could work. Let's do this. And then like a few days later, he called me back and he's like, Max, I've really thought about it. And he's like, it would really be hubris for me to attempt this experimental surgery with you. He's like, <laughs> he's like, I, I think it makes sense on paper. I think, you know, structurally it's very sound. I was thinking about things as if I was like a structural engineer. That's what I did in school. And he's like, I think it theoretically makes sense, but your leg has been developing the way it has been for the 20 years. So we can't just assume that if we line things up more anatomically, it's actually gonna be better for you. Mm. And we run the chance of, you know, your body putting cartilage in abnormal places and not normal places because of the pressures you had. And as a result, we might end up, even though it looks better on an X-ray, it might end up screwing things up. Mm. And so learning that, I realized like there is never gonna be a surgery unless like, there's some miracle way down the line that's gonna fix my problem. And so I left. And he gave you a good reason. He gave me a great reason. And like, I understood what he said and it wasn't just him versus me, like you're afraid to do it or invent some other kind of reason like the world's against me. It was very much like, I, I understand what your profession is, much better now, we can see eye to eye and now I can move on to a territory and not waste my time here anymore. You know, And maybe someday things will change. But um, I feel, whereas when I was younger, it was a, like a great source of dissatisfaction where I thought, if only the doctors could do this and that, like, I know there's a way to do it. And then actually having gone through the research and seen all kinds of specialists, ankle doctors, knee doctors, limb salvage surgeons, like going through each one of them and getting these different perspective and truly being open, I'm very satisfied. Like, I don't have to worry about that. That's just, that part's done. So then you continue to take everything in your own hands because you make these braces and yeah. things that... Yeah, and so what shut down in the, in the surgery front, I just turned my focus to the physical therapy, strength conditioning front, and then the orthotics front, the, the um, actually making like an exoskeleton for the leg. And there was a ton of ground to be gained there. So once I actually started, again, learning the language of those, those pieces, and one of the big ones was coming into San Francisco CrossFit, hearing Kelly speak about fitness for the first time, learning about functional movement, learning about body position, archetypes of movements, why we, the body gaining leverage over our own joints to move our own body and move weight. 
And then I was able to now have this physical template that took away from like the, that was removed from the abstractness of surgery and uh, x-rays where you're just trying to make things like look better and moved it into, okay, let's talk about function. Like pick up that heavy thing. What happens? Right. What's supposed to happen? Now what happens with my injury? What happens with my weird leg, with my abnormal joints? And now we can analyze it. Let's see the normal problems that normal limbs have. Hey, guess what? I have those too. So let's fix those first. I have tight quads. You know, I have my knee collapsing. I have no rotation in my hip. Mm-hmm. Like now let's start cleaning those things up. And then it was just epiphany after epiphany where it's like, wow, I can function so much better by just having a concrete understanding of what my body's supposed to be able to accomplish. And so that was a huge light bulb for me. And I recognized immediately like this is a skill I need to have. I need to be very aware of a very good proprioception of my body, very good awareness of all my joints in space, a very good intuition about safe positions and unsafe positions. So that was rich field. And then on the, you brought up the creating the braces, then it became a question of, okay, everything I can't fix through neurological control, mobility improvement and strength improvement, I now need to build something externally that makes up for the, the lack of internal pieces, the stuff I'm missing. And that turned me into the developing braces, um, and which became like a, a hobby of mine. Nobody can see you right now because we're on videotape, but when, when I see you working at the gym, you can't really tell that you have a brace or anything aside from the visible brace. But the way yeah. you move and stuff, there, you don't seem limited by the physical challenge that you have, which yeah. is, I guess, the took, goal. It took a lot of work. It took a lot of work. <laughs> but I mean, I think it's crazy and inspiring because you did it. So yeah. it can be done. It's not like it's not possible. Maybe for some folks, depending on the extent of it, it's not possible. But definitely improvement is so possible. Yeah, there, there's no way that anybody no matter how lucky you are when you walk in in terms of your gifted body and athleticism to how unlucky you are, life events and genetics and lifestyle, et cetera, there is always improvement to be made. I mean, unless you are like consciously engaged in the practice, there's no questions there's improvements to be made. And you typically find the more problems somebody has, the less conscientious they are about their their physical health and their physical movement in general because they have all these obstacles in front of them um, that just look at someone else move and then they see their problem and they can't move that way and they give up. Whereas if you're lucky where you have nothing wrong with you, you can kind of just start copying people. You don't, nobody has to tell you anything. You just look at that move and you say like, okay, let me try to, how do they do that? But if you have some major issue, some major pain, you immediately, that learning mechanism just kind of gets short-circuited. Hmm. And so you have to have a much more cerebral, like frontal cortex conscious approach to it. That takes more time, but it, it's another route to get there. And it's essential. If you're trying to improve your function in the world and your level of pain, you have to be conscious of your body in that way. All right, it's awesome. So let's talk about your next lesson, which is finding purpose through solving your own problems. Yeah, so up until this point, I'd basically taken time off and I was uh, attempting to live a better life, which I was accomplishing. I'd say within six months of me really attempting to improve my state in the world, I made more progress than I'd made in the previous 15 years, like hands down. And 
Throughout that process, I began volunteering to help veterans learn about functional fitness, like doing fitness camps. I was invited just because people knew that I had an issue. I wasn't coaching at the time, but people knew I had an issue and I'd be good perspective. And when I got down there, I remember one of the days I was watching someone with an amputation, which is different than what I have but uh, there's a lot of similarities. Mm. And I walked over and I talked to her and I showed her a couple tricks that I'd learned, like just very tactical things about doing like a med ball clean. And I instantly, uh, you know, fixed her problem. She was thankful. And upon leaving that situation, I recognized that was one of the first times in my life, if not the first time that I knew something. I had some piece of knowledge in my mind that if I wasn't there to deliver it to that person, she would not have gotten what she needed. Right. Like the other person in the group wouldn't have given it to her. If she like looked for it, she probably wouldn't have found it. And it was a sensation that I'd never had before. It was like, I'd actually learned something through my own life experience that I know is true. And I just recognized immediately, like this needs to be a part of my life. Right. Like I found that through working so diligently on my own condition to try to improve my own lot in life, not only did I improve my own lot in life, uh, eliminating a lot of my, my problems, I was developing a body of knowledge about just the path required to get there. And I, I thought, this is great. Like I would do this and not get paid for it. And that's what I started doing. I just started volunteering more and more. That's when I started the class here at, at San Francisco CrossFit. I went to Kelly and Juliet and said, hey, here's what you guys have meant to me and the gym's meant to me. I'd like to offer a class um, on the weekends. I'd like to teach it. I'd like to be for free. And just anybody who wants to come in and experience functional movement can come and do so. And they were 100% on board. And so I started doing that every weekend since 2015. And the more I got into that, the more I recognized, like, these are just the conversations I want to have. Like, when I wake up, these are the problems I want to think about. These are people I know I can help. And I, you know, broadened that out further the more I learned about strength conditioning and, uh, and now I coach all clients, but it became my full-time work. And so now my primary concern is just, you know, I just enjoy coaching in general, but I really enjoy finding people that have had nagging problems for their whole life, whether it's something incredibly severe like cerebral palsy, you know, some massive neurological condition, or something just that, hey, I tore my rotator cuff when I was 15, you know, playing on a tree and it never has been right since. Like, I don't know how to lift the weight over my head. I avoid these activities and I like piecing the puzzle out for those people to help those people build a physical practice, a way to be conscious of their body, to move their body in the world and ultimately just be more functional. Wow, that's cool, man. Yeah. That's really, really impressive. You gonna write a book or are you writing a book? You gotta uh, write a book. <laughs> <laughs> Your journey is just really cool. I still have a long way to go. I think uh, it's good. Uh, I'm happy what I do on a daily basis. Um, I, I'm just trying to accumulate more stuff where I feel like I have things that I'm genuinely interested in saying. I'm not, that's all I'm interested in. Just trying to learn things that are like, yeah. You can feel it, you know, when you find something like this and you're having a conversation, even the conversation right now, like we're having, like, there's nothing else I can talk about. I'm interested in all kinds of things. I'm interested in, you know, I watch a lot of UFC. I. <laughs> ride motorcycles, like I have a lot of fun hobbies that I do and I'm interested in. I will not talk about any one of those in the same way that I talk about traveling, enjoy the hell out of it. But this is something where it's like, you can, you can feel it in your nerves. It's like not in your head, you can just feel it. 
And when I recommend anybody listening to this, when you talk about a subject and you have that reaction, then you just follow that reaction and it'll lead you. If it just turns into a hobby, great, it turns into a hobby. If it turns into a career, even better. If it turns into your whole life, which that's for mine, then. Listen to yourself. Listen to yourself. That's like, yeah, you can, you can feel purpose when it, when it hits you. Great, thanks, Max. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Lessons Live podcast. The Lessons Live podcast is part of the Lessons Live project, where our mission is to catalog the lessons of every human being's unique life and disseminate those lessons for humanity's betterment. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. If you have lessons you would share with the world, you can share them now at LessonsLive.com, a platform where you can share your life's lessons and learn from others. If you want to be a guest on this podcast, please send me an email at info at LessonsLive.com and let me know what you would teach the world. Until next time, I wish you well.